Hello and welcome to the Deep Two Podcast. My name's Sean and joining me is the one and only Dante. How are you? Good, man. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty excited with the playoffs right in the middle of it. Very lucky. Very exciting time to be an NBA fan. Exactly. And uh, let's just get right into it. What would you like to talk about first? Beautiful. I thought we'd start off talking about the biggest controversy in NBA at the moment, which is the Golden State versus Houston landing zone fiasco. Mm. For those who haven't been following along... um, there were several crucial calls or no calls down the, down the end of the Golden State-Houston game one, which Golden State came away with a crucial win, um, centred around three-point shooting jump shot fouls and whether or not the shooter had enough space to land. And yeah, so this is obviously in reference to uh, the landing zone being where players land after their jump shot. I think I should just start with the, the referees the next day came up with the last two-minute report, yep. and they said that there were no wrong calls. They, they called everything correctly, which obviously there was a lot to call correctly. There was the initial James Harden jump shot, which in which he... Well, the argument is that he waves his feet forwards when he, yep, when he, shoot, yep, when he lands. The, so The Reggie Miller rule there, the little kick out. <laughs> Yeah, and then there was a three-pointer before that with Chris Ball where he sort of stuck out his hip and yeah. obviously they're not going to call that, which you know infuriated him throughout the game and which <laughs> led to a technical at the end and a bit of a fiasco, but Golden State came away with a win. What are your thoughts on the on the landing zone? Do you reckon they're accentuating the contact? It's, it's an interesting issue because when you're looking at jump shooting fouls inside the three-point arc, there's a lot of really crafty players like Harden, like Paul, will up fake and then try and get the defender to jump into them and they'll shoot with a sort of a contorted motion to try and draw that contact. But there's a bit of a lack of dissonance between inside and outside because the NBA has been really strict on players differentiating their shooting motion when they're shooting a three in order to draw contact with like with the kick out rule and with like Chris Paul sticking his hip out. Um, so I, I think that the NBA has been sort of very proactive in saying um, that these accentuations of jump shooting motion are not going to be called fouls and they've always been very proactive with the last two minute reports Mm. and even putting things out on social media the nba referees accounts very active creating videos to explain why this is or isn't a no call Mm. and personally i think that they got it right i think you can clearly see it's it's definitely subtle um and for a player like paul that's you know been playing since like 2005 has gotten away with this for you know more than a decade um, but I think on the whole of it, those those no calls down the stretch were no calls. And they mm. were tough no calls. And it's bang, bang, it could have gone either way. But I think ultimately they were the right call. Yeah, and it makes me think with James Harden, um, whether or not he's wavering his feet forwards or not, what if he just gone up with it and put the shot in? Because with the actual shot that Draymond contested, the the shot that we're talking about, just clanked off the side of the ring. So yeah. what if he had actually really not focused about getting the contact and actually just tried to put it up? Maybe we're looking at a different score than... Golden State coming away with a win. On the actual series itself, I, you know, this is a series we've all been waiting for since it finished last year in Game 7. I'm really happy that both teams are just going at it. They're not mucking about with, like, playing like an Andrew Bogut or, like, a Gerald Green. Like, everyone's just going full playoff rotations in the second round. Golden State only played eight, seven deep. Like, there was only two players off the bench, Sean Livingston and Kevon Looney that played more than 14 minutes or more than 10 minutes. I think that's the definite um, shorting of the rotation from both teams that we all expected throughout the season. And it's sort of amplified um, when you have players like Kevin Durant going supernova at exactly the right time, just absolutely scorching offensively and playing some really good defense. It means that you don't have to bring players like Alfonso McKinney off the bench to play as many minutes. Sort of young, young, unblooded players who haven't been there in what's 
probably going to continue to be one of the most intense playoff series we see yeah. this well, postseason. Yeah, people like Alfonso McKinney play well in the regular season and should keep it to the regular season. <laughs> uh, one thing, as as you know, I'm a Golden State fan, and uh, we talked a bit before this saying that we're a bit worried about Golden State, and I am quite petrified. I was a bit scared going in because James Harden's obviously killing it, but like Golden State only won by four points this game, and they shot 14 out of 47 from three. They yeah. had one quarter in which they shot like a good above-average percentage. Yeah. And like we got away with a win on four points and they shot that poorly from three. And PJ Tucker, like a crucial player for them, is really like instrumental to their defense, played 39 minutes uh, and didn't make a single shot. So like if someone like PJ Tucker just makes a shot, maybe this maybe this game's different. And I'm just like we, we got away with a win, but like I'm not very like doesn't really <laughs> it doesn't exactly inspire confidence yeah it but there's doesn't. two schools of thought on a win like that the first is that it's really concerning that houston's defense is a bothering bothering golden state so much but also that golden state's shots just weren't going down but the other way the other way to look at it is even when you're not playing your best basketball there's still room for optimism because if you can play poorly and come away with a win in a really hotly contested rivalry game then when you do play well who knows what you're capable of but the issue that we've been we've been seeing every postseason with golden state for the last four years is the idea of whether or not they have a switch that they can just flip on flip off mm. And the idea that they lack motivation and they have to kind of be cornered before they'll really lock into their full potential. And in recent postseasons, I feel like it's gotten to a point where they're going dangerously close before they um, actually unlock their ability to play as a cohesive and like fully formed team like we saw a few years ago. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Golden State and whether or not they have a switch? Uh, well, we've seen it before. Like we, they've been in the corner. They've been like. Yeah, knocked back into the corner against Memphis that first title season when they were down 2-1 and then you've seen it against Cleveland when they were down um, in that first championship season where they just said, all right, Bogut, just sit on the bench and we'll start, start the, what's, what's it called? The Hamptons 5. The Hampton 5, yeah. Um, and in this game, they did actually start the Hampton 5. So it's good that they're not mucking about, but I'm a bit worried that like this is like maybe it's our second win. Like now we're really cramping in. I don't know, man. Like we only just scraped away the win. Like you said, we still got the win, but like... This is going to be this round, next round against whoever it is, Denver or Portland, and then the finals against arguably a better team than those last two Cleveland teams. Going at 100%, I don't like, that's that's a lot. Yeah. Especially coming after just scraping by and sort of taking the Clippers for granted where that wasn't a rest. You didn't, you didn't beat a Detroit in four. You actually yeah. had to like try against the Clippers. Yeah. yeah, well, there was that now infamous 31-point comeback against the Clippers and then going to a game six. Where they handled them, admittedly they did handle them, mm. and Durant kind of caught fire at exactly the right time, but definitely too close for comfort. Mm. I wanted to get your thoughts on um, Philadelphia over in the Eastern Conference and how they're looking after their first two games against Toronto. I thought this was going to be Toronto in four, to, to be honest, and I just thought Toronto were absolutely like just going to run away, run away with it. Yeah. They're a better team, but... Like you look at it, and in in game one, everyone was blown away by how well Spicy P, Pascal Spicy Siakam, P. <laughs> and Kawhi played. But I mean, we just today, so obviously game two finished, and again you had good games by Kawhi and Pascal. They weren't shooting too well, but they still got points. But everyone else just hasn't really showed up. Yeah. I don't know if it's Kyle Lowry needs to stay back after midnight putting up <laughs> shots or like whatever it is, but 
it seems like a two-man team. It's, I thought they had the deeper team going in. It was an interesting, an interesting experience watching games one and two for me because in in the first game, Toronto was just so clearly the better team, and they looked like they did in the first round and really all season, where they just kind of breeze through and their offense is so crisp and on defense, everyone digs in and they're long. But watching game two. It was so claustrophobic and Philly really, really slowed the pace down with the exception of only a few times and they decided to run in transition. It was really, for most of the game, quite a slow, methodical effort by the Sixers. And like you mentioned, um, Spicy P and Kawhi weren't hitting shots for a lot of the majority of the game. There were a few big threes by Kyle Lowry down the stretch to keep uh, Toronto in touching distance. But players like Danny Green and Norm Powell, Fred Van Vliet really, really didn't show up. And I don't think that it's going to be as easy as we thought, especially if it's a two-man team, like you say, going up against Philly. And we all know their big four, how even with Embiid hobbled, how dangerous they can be. Mm. The reason I, one of the main reasons I had Toronto sweeping is that Marcus Sol just is such a good post defender and he's yeah. played so well and he's really good at not getting overpowered by bigger players. So I just thought if you're just going to like take away one of their best players or like neuter one of their best players, unfortunately we couldn't really see this today because uh, Joel Embiid had the shits as he so <laughs> described. But like I thought that, that that would be an interesting battle because he only had 16 points in the first game off poor shooting. So yeah. it's it's yeah. a bit surprising they got it. They, they stole one at home. Well, he didn't look good today, Embiid. He played... Uh, sparingly for most of the first half and wasn't a focal point of their offense. The only thing that he did really, really well was um, get to the free throw line. Um, and when he was matched up in the post with it, with Gasol, he did look really hesitant and didn't really want to take it one-on-one mm. on one like he would. When he was matched up with Ibaka, though, he was really, really overpowering. And part of the reason why he wouldn't have, why he didn't get many shots up is because Ibaka, I think, had four fouls defending Embiid in the post. So any time it got down there, um, Ibaka really needed to get hands on to stop him from just going through. But Butler played uh, a monstrous game and really sort of kind of justified his position and his ball dominance on the team after a really poor game one performance. Um, just on that bench production, I... I mentioned that their depth hasn't really been showing up. Serge Bucker, Norman Powell and Fred Van Vliet all respectively were negative 12, negative 17 and negative 18 on the game. So while the, the starters stayed relatively neutral, not too not too big, not too low on the plus minus, the bench just got blown out. Frigid numbers in the north. <laughs> not good. Um, and, and honestly, you could tell there are sometimes when plus minus doesn't really match up with the viewing experience, but none of these players played well today. Um, and Philly is another team that's really shortened their rotation. Um, the only sort of the only reserves that played today were insignificant minutes that were unexpected was Amir Johnson and Greg Monroe. With the exception of that, James Ennis is the only reserve playing big minutes, and he yeah. played really well in the first half. But players like Fred Van Vliet, who could roast 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 second units of the other teams. Um, and now going up against Ben Simmons and Jimmy Butler, yeah. um, trying to get one three and one four pick and rolls, and they're really switching everything. And instead of coming up against some overmatched second unit def- second unit defender, you're coming up against Jimmy Butler, so mm. an all an all defensive caliber player. So mm. it'll be interesting to see how they stagger the rotations and try and sort of work the matchups for Toronto in the yeah. games. And it's also interesting to see that all these teams, like out of all the remaining playoff series, they all 
seem to be going all in. Like you're saying, 40 plus minutes for most of the starters. Yeah. And this is only the second round. It's only so the second round. So fatigue, survival of the fittest. Who's fatigue gonna... could be a big factor going forward. Yeah, this might be a really slow uh, NBA finals. I think one of the things that allows both of these teams to play their starters big minutes is the fact that they both had relatively easy wins in the first round. So mm. I just wanted to get your thoughts on um, Philly Brook- the Philly-Brooklyn series, which was one of the most fun first round series yeah. that I can remember. Yeah, I um, obviously they, they shocked him in game one, but um, and then they came back and won in uh, Philly, won in game two without Joel Embiid. I don't really know what to say. I think uh, Brooklyn just uh, like had the surprise attack on him. Um, it just shows how I think uh, Philly are a bit vulnerable. Um, if they like, obviously they were exposed for their lack of lack of shooting, and it was really like I said claustrophobic. And now they've had to get rid of some of those players. So Jonathan Simmons, who just didn't shoot well in Brooklyn, is just out of the rotation. And then Boban, however fun it is to watch <laughs> watch him play, he's just not playing at all. It, even though it was a first-round series and they got away with the win, it sort of showed their weakness that like if they're not playing their big five guys, and that's some of it's due to the two trades they made during the season, giving up a bit of depth, um, they, look a bit, they look a bit vulnerable. Yeah, well, I mean, it is really telling going from Saric and Covington off the bench playing in the second unit as key contributors to going to James Ennis and Furkan Korkmaz, which, mm. God bless them, <laughs> they're just not the same calibre of players. Yeah, um, it, uh, imagine if they had a Marco Bellinelli and Ersan well, Ilyasov this year. That's what I was year. thinking this morning as I watched Ennis clank those <laughs> off the front of the rim, that this was this was Bellinelli last year mm. playing the wing minute, someone who can curl around screens, and he tries on defence. He's not fantastic, but... Yeah. Um, Really quality reserves and Phillies sacrificed so much of their depth. And I think that was something that you saw in the first game against Brooklyn in the first round because they were kind of caught off guard by Jarrett Allen's activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the three guards, Dinwiddie, uh, Allstar, D'Angelo Russell and Karis LeVert, their activity and the pace that they wanted to play with kind of really made Philly work for it, I think, more than they were anticipating. Uh, on to the next one. Did you want to touch on the Clippers series that Golden State won in the same amount of games? Yeah, yeah. So it was, in the end, a relatively comfortable win for Golden State, minus a few sort of helter-skelter moments where they kind of melted down. But I think, on the whole, it was encouraging that they managed to play really, really well when it mattered against a team who plays in a similar style to Houston where they've got a couple of ball-dominant guards. They like to move the ball. They shoot a lot of threes. And they have players who... Um, will dive to the bucket and be active on the pick and roll. They handled that despite big games from Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell. I think that bodes well going forward. And I think the most encouraging thing from that series is that when it really mattered, Kevin Durant just said, look, I can get any shot I want at any time. I'm just going to go. If you want to double me, then look, we've got Clay, Steph and Iggy on the on the court with Jamon Green at the same time. The ball is going to move and the threes are going to drop. And I think eventually that's what happened. Mm. Well, speaking about one of the hottest players in the planet right now, uh, I'll just segue that beautifully into Damian Lillard. Now, the Denver-Portland game one is on as we speak, but do you have any thoughts like just heading into that series that you'd like to talk about? I think it's going to be, you know, it's a bit elementary to say, but I think Nikola Jokic is going to be the key to that series because with the injury to Yusuf Nurkic, um, who was playing really good defense mm-hmm. towards the end of the season and anchoring the Portland defense, it's now Enes Kanter in at the five for um, for Portland and the infamous can't play Kanter. So um, <laughs> Jokic is going to feast as he did in game one, putting up big numbers. And when Jokic is going, that sort of necessitates uh, the smaller players. So players like Gary Harris and... Um, Jamal Murray getting going as well. And I just don't think that Dame's heroics will be enough to see them through. 
especially given the way that um, sort of CJ kind of hasn't shown up yet these playoffs. Yeah, as you know, I'm, uh, I've got a real soft spot for Denver. I do love watching Jokic put up 23-12-9 and nine in his first ever playoff series. Huge, huge. But um, I am scared of Dame because our guards can't really guard. That's that's uh, They're an offensive. Yeah. They've, they've, they've got good defensive numbers, but they are generally an offense first team. Yeah. And with Dame playing so well, like he just... He just willed that team over yeah. OKC. And um, one of these two teams are going to be in the conference finals, which is really weird yeah. to think of. Um, yeah. There's no cupcakes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, who do you who do you pick it, um, coming out on top of this series? I think it's going to be Denver, and I think it's going to be an easier series than they're facing at the Spurs. I think they're probably going to win in five or six. Because, like I said before, I think... You have Jokic to pick one. You have to pick one. Five. five. Ooh, five. Jokic is, is just too good. And the difference between Dame and CJ and then the platoon of guards that um, Denver can put out is not as much as the difference between Jokic and the Portland front line. I just think that's going to be the difference. Yeah, I agree with you. I've got Denver in five. And it is it is such a shame that Nurkic is injured because whenever yeah. they did play in the regular season, there was always that like, oh, look, we got, you know, we couldn't really work together. I'm going to trade you away. And there was a bit like... Plumley and Nurkic there, a bit of bad blood, but obviously we won't be seeing that this this series. So that will be all for our play, <laughs> playoff predictions and little discussion. Uh, on to some awards. Uh, Dante, what would you like to start with? I think we'll start with the one that's on everyone's minds, um, the two-man race for MVP. <laughs> Personally, I've picked Giannis as the MVP, I think mm-hmm. putting up um, 27, 12, and 6 on the best team in the league with the second best offense and the best defense is just like an unassailable case. Um, I think the the um, de- the capacity that he has to sort of give a new look to the traditionally stagnant Bucks offense, um, playing as a he him as the one in in a four four one um, look is just unbelievable. Um, rim rolling, destroying the rim, shooting un unprecedented numbers um, in terms of efficiency and quantity from the paint and on defense really sort of being the anchor for them freelancing a lot with Brook Lopez in the paint he, he's responsible for you know defending ball handlers defending bigs he's a help side defender I just think him his defensive instincts and his unbelievable wingspan um, sort of propel him to the, the more um, bulletproof MVP case what uh, do you think well, just before I get into my uh, my pick, I'd just like to say, Brook Lopez, who was on LA's roster and they had <laughs> the money to re-sign him, he would have played perfectly along LeBron, who he now is playing perfectly alongside Giannis. But yep. that's neither here nor there. Uh, my pick is a guy who started off the season, started off eleven and fourteen. They had Carmelo Anthony on the team. They suffered an injury to uh, like one of the second best players or third, however you like to rank it, but Clint Capella and then the other guy in Chris Paul and. It looked a bit grim. They were out of the playoffs. They were 11th. Your Phoenix Suns were looking like they might overtake them. And <laughs> then some little guy called James Harden went on the unguardable tour and just averaged over 30 points for, I think it was 28 games or yeah. not sure on my number. And he is just, you mentioned the numbers, how you can't dispute the numbers. He's averaging over 36 points a game. The last person to do that was Kobe in 2005, 2006. And then before that, I think it was Elgin Baylor back yeah. in long, well before our births. A long, long time ago. <laughs> um, and I'll just give you a little bit of a listicle. James Harden is leading the league in value over replacement player, box plus minus, offensive box plus, box plus minus, win shares, offensive win shares. He has the highest usage in the league, higher than Russell Westbrook. 
I, I do love a story and going from 11 and 14, yeah. they looked down in the dumps and he just picked him up and put him on his back. I understand that Giannis might be the best two-way player on the best team. With the, I'm sort of talking myself into it on the best offense and best <laughs> defense. But if you're looking at pure value, I think that just James Harden just going absolutely nuts and just chucking numbers out there and no, have brought themselves back into title contention is much more valuable. It will be interesting to see how people with an actual vote um, ultimately end up leaning um, because, like you mentioned, the last person to put up the offensive numbers with the usage that Harden has done as Kobe about 15 years ago. And that's a season that a lot of people think he should have won um, MVP. Famously, he was All-NBA first team but came second in MVP voting to Steve Nash in his second MVP year. Mm. Nash put up averages of about 18 and 12 um, on 50-40-90 shooting, which was almost unprecedented at the time. Mm. But people look back on that and they look at Kobe's raw numbers and they say that he should have won the MVP. The Bucks and the Suns are relatively similar um, across the areas because that was the famous seven seconds or less Suns team that sort of revolutionised pace and space and D'Antoni and Nash were these auteurs that just brought in an unbelievable offensive revolution to the NBA. And in the same vein, with Brook Lopez as a 280-pound sharpshooter who's mm. just on, on defence manning the middle and on offence just stroking it from downtown, we've never had a player quite like Giannis who could play the four the one through four on defense and then play the five on offense. Um, so there is sort of something to people getting swept up in the narrative of like this novel offensive system. So I don't know, it'll be interesting to see where people go, but I think I'm going to lean towards Greek Freak, like I said, just because it is a narrative combination that works really well. And traditionally, um, mm. best player, best team. Yeah, I, I can definitely see Giannis winning it. I just interesting the the James Harden argument. Uh, the players voted, and their the players MVP was James Harden. So that's yeah. whether that's got anything to do with the actual vote. But that's yeah. interesting that the players would rather vote for James Harden, who's just and going against him every night. Yes, yeah. so difficult. Surprised mm. that the players are rewarded in there. Yeah, I think they're both well deserving. Maybe we need a co MVP. <laughs> but uh, you mentioned Brook Lopez and how he's changed his game. He's like what a two hundred eighty pound beast shooting threes. You could say he's very improved, but would you put him as your most improved? Look at that segue. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful stuff, Sean. Uh, I would not have him as my most improved, um, although he has been the key to unlocking the Bucks' success this season. For my most improved, I've ended up going with a player who we mentioned before, Spicy Pete, <laughs> up in the uh, the cold north. Um, he's sort of taken a jump that I don't think even the most optimistic people foresaw. He came into the league a few years ago as an energy player and a, an effort rebounder, and he's really sort of honed his skills across a really, really um, broad spectrum where he's now a capable play initiator. He's got a really good handle. He can shoot really well from the mid-range and he's still got those um, energy and hustle instincts that he's always had. He's putting up averages, I don't have them in front of me, but of roughly 16 or 17 with about seven boards and four assists um, on the second best team in the East. And I think just in terms of sheer growth and unlocking skill sets that most people never even dreamed that a player would have out of New Mexico State with the 25th pick. <laughs> um, I just think a remarkable job by him and the coaching staff up in Toronto. Yeah, I agree with you. Spicy P is the most improved player. He jumped from 7 points to 17 points. Uh, he went from 22% three-point to 36%. Uh, he's 17th in the entire league in win shares. Um, and per cleaning the glass, which they calculate how many projected wins that player would add to a 
league average team, he adds 33 wins to a team. Jeez. Which is second on his team to Danny Green. I don't know how they're calculating <laughs> that one. <laughs> Danny Green, the analytics darling. <laughs> <laughs> he actually is. But yeah, so it's it's like a two and a half man race. You got yeah. Spicy P, who we yeah. both have, D'Angelo Russell and De'Aaron Fox as a nice little third. I didn't pick D'Angelo Russell because sort of natural progression like he's yeah. this is what is a third or fourth fourth year yeah, fourth yeah which is you could put an argument for pascal but like we we've seen the tools that d'angelo could have to to get to where he is um and pascal just jumped out of nowhere and you look at it with let's say Kawhi does leave toronto it's i think they're in better hands that yeah someone can take the reins and you would never have thought that at the start of the year well i mean if they if they can make a deep run and they can make it to either to the finals or the, the conference finals and Kawhi doesn't end up re-signing um if you had told people that before the season started they people in toronto would have been just <laughs> devastated like just blow it up <laughs> the franchise might as well leave um but now you're in a position where you think that um siakam as a number one option is really really viable and it wouldn't be a surprise to see him make another jump to putting up 23 24 um close to 10 boards and and his ability to initiate plays in the pick and roll as a as a ball handler um and i don't know it's just sort of beyond words because he's um grown so much in such a short period of time and yeah like you say they would be in safe hands next season going forward yeah much rather have Kawhi there but <laughs> well, yeah i think any any team with Kawhi on it's a better team than without uh rookie of the year who is your pick for rookie of the year rookie of the year is a tough one the way that Doncic opened the season was just it, it caught everyone by storm he was so hyped coming in um obviously there was the trade for um him for trey young on draft mm-hmm. day and um, what with him being the EuroLeague MVP, a lot of hype coming in and remarkably he delivered on it instantly, leading the Mavs to a plus 500 record through the first 20 games. Um, but it, it, it really tightened up um, later in the season after the All-Star break when Trey Young just unlocked his deep shooting and playmaking abilities and went on an absolutely crazy tear with the Hawks and they started winning games. Ultimately, I've given the nod to Dontich because I think that his production and consistency... Um, was of a higher level overall. It's important to remember that Trey Young really struggled yeah. out of the gate. Yeah, shooting less than 20% from three yeah, in the first taking, month. Yeah, ta- the, the sort of threes that he's taking, they look great when they go in, but yeah. when you're bricking them off the side of the rim, it, it, it's really frustrating. Um, and the Hawks are a really bad team for the mm-hmm. first half of the season. So um, Trey Young, an absolutely worthy second place and absolutely worthy all-rookie first team, but ultimately Luka Doncic, just you can't beat him. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you there just for the consistency over the whole entire year. But I think it's just so exciting that these two are traded for each other on draft night. Yeah, well, I mean, it adds a whole new wrinkle to their, yeah. their relationship. And you talk about the two best players coming out of a draft class will always be compared to each other, especially when they were traded on yeah. draft night. And that trade that many people were, were panning the Hawks um, quite quite laughably for um, when that occurred, they've got that extra first-round pick. Yeah. Um, and now that Trey has really developed into the player that he is, that first-round pick can be used to, you know, grab grab another player that can really fill out that roster. Yeah, we're going to have to see how that pick turns out. If you look at just – if it was simply just a one-for-one trade, then you would say, all right, what are you doing in Atlanta? But now they have that extra pick going into this draft, which is looking to be a top-heavy draft. Like history, it's going to have to wait and it's, see. It's yeah, going to be so gonna exciting. It's going to be one of the one of the great things to look at the next sort of three, four years, how it pans out. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on possibly the most polarizing of the awards um, this award season, which is Coach of the Year. There's a few candidates on really win-heavy teams, mm. um, but who did you end up going with? 
so four candidates I came down to. Uh, Nick Nurse in Toronto, Mike Buttonholzer in, in Milwaukee, um, Mike Malone in Denver, and Doc Rivers in LA. Yeah. Oh, I'm actually not sure. Uh, I would have to go with Mike Buttonholzer. Again, the same reason with um, Giannis from VP, best player, best team. Yeah. They jumped from such a stagnant offense, offense and yeah. just never really unlocked, like, unlocked their defense to leading the league in both those categories. And it's just, he just fits the profile of a coach of the year. You always see those coaches yeah, that are yeah. like, oh, look, Steve Kerr just started. They made a jump, give it to him. Oh, yeah. X and Y just started, give it to him. So this is his first year there. If he replicates it again next season, he probably won't win it. But it's just the story that always comes through, the best player and the, the sorry, the yeah. best coach that revitalized the team. Oh, man, and well-deserved well as well. They were a powerhouse. They're, there's few teams that have the personnel to match up with them when Brook Lopez is shooting threes and Giannis is just terrorizing defenses in the paint. It's really interesting to think about, though. Um, Mark Budenholzer now playing with two all-stars on his team um, and winning 60 games like he did back in, I think it was 2013-14 with the Hawks. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Al Horford... The weird 60-win team. The weird 60-win team that had four players win player of the month in <laughs> January. Yeah, four stars with Jeff Teague. And, <laughs> Prime Damari Carroll. Oh. Um, yeah, like I said, it's a very, very close race um, for Coach of the Year, and I think any of the any of the candidates would be deserving. Nick Nurse really kind of stabilised the Raptors after. Impossible to understate how sort of, I don't know, unbalanced the franchise was after Dwayne Casey's exit and the repeated playoff failures, and he's really come in and along with Kawhi stabilised. Um, Doc Rivers was doing a remarkable job before they traded their best player, um, and everybody thought they were doing that um, in an effort to tank, and instead they became even stronger um, behind Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell, and mm. some crazy depth. And if you look at all the players that have been in and out of their roster these last two years, or even just this last year, and he's been able to keep the ship afloat. He's a coach who a few years ago, people were at the end of the Lob City era, people were trying to run out of town, and mm -hmm. he's really proved his worth. I think ultimately, though, I'm going to go with Mike Malone. Denver finished second in the second in the West, and he's obviously coaching quite a talented cast of characters who we knew Jokic was good before Mike Malone got there. We knew that Gary Harris was good. Jamal Murray is really, really on the up on the up and coming, but this team was devastating by injuries and still managed to maintain their strength all through the season. They didn't really teeter. Um, they had players like Monte Morris and Malik Beasley coming in, playing absolutely amazingly, but mm. players who at the start of the season, if you said they were going to be part of your core rotation, you would have thought they'd be in trouble. So I think Mike Malone's done a really um, laudable job um, with this team and they're looking dangerous heading into the conference conference semi-finals so yeah i i completely understand the argument for mike malone um i'm gonna still stick with budenholzer i think some of your arguments for mike malone uh why denver i can't remember his name i might cut that ex uh, denver will win the executive of the year just because of their absolute depth and tim they've connelly. been able to tim connelly and yep. they've been able to actually shouted me a beer once um when i went to the denver stiffs watch party in melbourne it was um they contacted Denver, said, hey, we're doing this in Melbourne. And they said, that's amazing. So they put in $350. This is a little story time with Sean. <laughs> Tim Connolly contributed $350 towards a bar tab to everyone there. So I drank on Tim Connolly's money, as well as donating a signed jersey, a signed basketball, and signed photos, which I didn't win. So you could even say that you and Tim Connolly are good mates then. I could. I could. I, I, I mean, I owe him a beer, but <laughs> I mean, if he's listening to this, I'll have to hit him up, but... Yeah, so not uh, maybe maybe he's bought my vote with that one for uh, for sharing me a beer, but <laughs> bit of a conflict of interest. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it's not very professional of me, but yeah, you, you might have to give uh, give him the nod there for 
um, executive of the year for the yeah. s- for the same reasons. Very, 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 you do very need nice a coach done. to coach him. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, just as we wrap up here, I'm just going to have to go with quick fire on who you have to win the following round. So first up, Milwaukee-Boston, who wins and how many games? Milwaukee-Boston, I think it's going to be Milwaukee in seven. Milwaukee in seven? Yeah. I've got Milwaukee in five. Really? And we know that they've lost game I'm, one. I'm shaken after game one. The way that Al Holt put the clamps on the entire Bucks <laughs> offense in the second half has me shaken. Shook, I think the word you <laughs> um, I, I do like that. Uh, Al Horford never played well in back-to-backs. And as we know, there's no back-to-backs in the playoffs. Yep. But I just don't think Giannis is going to score 21 points on 22 shots. Anyway, we'll keep going. Uh, who got Philly-Toronto? It is currently tied one all. I'm going to go Toronto in six. Yeah, I agree with you, Toronto and six. Golden State, Houston. Golden State leads 1-0. I think we're going seven. I think we're going Golden State in seven. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I just, there's something about Houston, there's something about that series. I'm nervous. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just too cautious, but I've seen what James Harden has done in the playoffs in the past and what he's done this entire season. And I think it's exactly the kind of small and switchable defense that can give Golden State trouble on offense. And um, we all know what Harden can do carrying the team. I agree with you. I've got Golden State in seven. Yeah. And it's going to be a hard series because as we saw, uh, Stephen Clay didn't play too well um, in this most recent game, but then PJ Tucker didn't play well. Austin Rivers is coming back, however much of a boost that gives you, but <laughs> it'll take away a couple of minutes from Gerald Green, which is never a bad idea. Um, so there's a tiny little boost there. I, it's neck and neck. It's, yeah, yeah, two, if, if two it gets, really good teams. If it gets to a game seven and everyone's healthy, like just flip a coin and then we don't yeah. even have to show up. Yeah. And then finally, Denver-Portland, who do you have? I think I'm going to go Denver in five. Denver in five. Yeah, that's confident. Dame yeah. is in the form of his life, and you're just spitting in his face. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ride with the Joker. I'm gonna ride with my Serbian man child and see how far <laughs> he can take me. I've also got Denver in five. I don't know why I'm arguing <laughs> with you. Um, and then uh, I'll skip the fi- conference finals. But who, in your opinion, is going to win the whole lot this year, and who are they beating? I think it's going to be Golden State, and I think they're going to be. Easy victors over the Toronto Raptors. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's I think funny. ultimately they do they do have a switch somewhere, and I will go with the team that has arguably the greatest scorer of all time, definitively the greatest shooter of all time, yeah. and a and a host of current and former All Stars to to lean on. I am um, <laughs> gonna have to agree with you again. I've got <laughs> Golden State beating Toronto in the finals. I am. Um, I'm a bit spooked by this recent loss to Philly, but I think yeah. they'll get over the hump and the yeah. bench has to produce something eventually. Yeah. So yeah. So anyway, that uh, sums up uh, the first inaugural pilot episode of the Deep 2 podcast. Uh, it's been great. My name's Sean. And my name's Dante. Thanks and for listening. Thanks for listening.